0: Let's say hello to my guest. My guest is uh, Dr. Jeannie Ackberg. Do you pronounce it Ackberg?
1: Oh, I answer to a lot of things, Gary. Ackberg is the preferred, Okterberg. I think. all right. Uh-huh. You can uh, call me Jeannie. She team.
0: has received her recognition for pioneering work in the use of imagery and healing and psychoimmunology and behavioral strategies for reducing pain and anxiety and the role of women as health consumers. And she's a research a consultant as well as a as an a lecturer on healing. And she also was awarded Healer of the Year by the Nurse Healers at Cooperative. And she is also the author of her newest book, Lightning at the Gate. It's about her own healing journey. First, welcome to our program.
1: Thank you. It's my privilege, Gary. I think your book was the first one to indoctrinate me into this field. <laughs> One of your early books. Yeah, carried it around for a long time.
0: Well, I'm going to give you a a rather extensive introduction to the issue and then uh, have you share more like a classroom on the air uh, Mm -hmm. your own insight into it, all right?
1: All right.
0: I don't believe in little chit-chat back and forth. I believe in context and no interruptions so you have plenty of time. Now, here is the issue. It is my belief that our medical culture is not healing as it should not because there's a lack of intent i believe most physicians are honorable and truly would really enjoy seeing the patients healed rather i believe that the problem is that the they have signed into in effect a subprime mortgage of medicine medical care Uh, just as we know the fiasco of someone who doesn't really understand the fine print can't comprehend what it means to double-click an interest rate, and they, they're paying 1200 when they sign it, and two years later it's 3000 they lose their home. Yeah. So, too, we have people going to physicians and with, uh, with things that could easily be dealt with, and the physician seems uh, almost perplexed that anything could be done except textbook medicine or cookbook medicine. So our medical culture is a form of ritual. Our physicians are like clergymen or Brahmin priests, at worst incompetent shamans, and whose diagnosis and treatment we take as scriptural. We accept without question their sacraments, which are nothing but medications, or we go further and surrender ourselves to their priestly skills like surgery, which may or may not benefit us. And within this entire ritual of postmodern society we live in our media telling us to eat this or that and be entertained only by what we are spoon-fed. Then there is the ritual of technological toys to occupy and dominate any quality time spent on introspective reflection or personal discovery is removed because we got to play with our toys. And our current health care and medical practice is a ritual of illness and death, not of one of enlightenment to the nature of disease, nor to our personal responsibility. Now the question is this, and th- this is just the layout of it. That's why I say I take my time so you see the total picture I'm trying to paint here so you can take your time and take each part. I believe that that we will not have anyone getting healthy outside of emergency medicine with with our current healthcare system unless we change the mindset and our perception of what healing actually is, encouraging the patient to identify their participation in both the process that led to disease or imbalance physically and therefore their responsibility not just as some passive spectator to filling a prescription but rather as a dynamic human being who no longer hides behind the idea that this is just a one-way ritual not to be challenged but rather a participation in cooperation with the physician therefore we can have a ritual of health, a ritual of healing uh something that I believe that we must understand that has to be contrasted with the ritual of illness. I do not believe, now this is where it gets a little hairy. I do not believe that today's physicians will ever be involved in the ritual of healing. Not because they wouldn't want to see it, but because you cannot believe in two dynamics simultaneously that are correspondingly opposite. You can't be happy and sad, constructive and destructive simultaneously. You can be one or the other, and the contract that is signed by the physician to become a physician today is based upon a technological, reductionistic, very abstract and more often than not existential view of the human condition. It is not seen as a dynamic, thriving, um, energy-bound being. Therefore, the doctor today can only help where it hurts, and only symptomatic adjustment, not causation. On the other hand, the patient is equally vulnerable as the physician, and the physician is equally vulnerable as the patient since the ritual of their lifestyle are virtually identical. The physician takes his or her kids to eat at a McDonald's. The number one cause of death in the entire United States for the last 100 years has been the American diet. Meat and animal proteins and animal products are the number one cause of that problem. The science is overwhelming. It is also a drain against our environment. Fifty percent of all fresh water in America goes to animal production. One-third of all natural resources, energy resources, go to animal production. We feed 22 pounds of high-quality grain to an animal to get one pound of beef in return. The energy, for example, is 50 gallons of water to grow a potato, thirty one hundred gallons of water to have a quarter pound hamburger or twelve thousand gallons of water for one pound of beef the, ha- the, the potato is good for us at all levels and the environment the animal protein, the hamburger, the roast beef, the chicken, the fish are destructive in fact fifty percent of all the fish in the united states that are caught are fed to animal protein a very inefficient way at the least but it's all subsidized So at one level, we know what causes disease, and we absolutely, positively, unequivocally refuse as individuals or collectively as a society to change because it's a part of our rituals. We don't want to be disrupted in the comfort of practicing rituals. So wise men and women each day go through rituals that are completely and perpetually destructive at every level mentally physically and spiritually we watch television we read news we're biased in being democrat or republican both of which are oxymoronic to the issue of challenge and change in a constructive way we practice something knowing that it is full and and participatory hypocrisy and yet we want a different outcome we want pe- politicians to be anything other than than the uh, the, the greedy uh, self-centered people they are we want a democracy that has a future for our children, yet we spend ourselves into oblivion. Uh we want things we cannot afford, hence the mess of subprimes, half the responsibility of the banks selling people things they didn't need and couldn't afford, and half people choosing not to be identified as to the responsibilities of what they were taking on. So we really have ourselves at every level to blame. I do not see anything at all in the existing medical model or the psychological model that is willing honestly to address this, and yet it brings it back into its deep hole and then eats it, regurgitates it, and spits it out as if somehow it has an answer. I believe we need an entirely new healing system based upon principles of enlightenment that have nothing to do with our existing one. I think the biggest mistake we could make is trying to have regular doctors become holistic. Even the holistic doctors, I know 90% of them, are just as greedy, just as limited, just as selfish as those practicing otherwise. The form is yours.
1: Oh, lots of thoughts, Gary. You mentioned the magic word ritual, ceremony. Um, I do think medicine is ritual, and I think that may be what heals, you know, I had an eye-opener uh, when I was reading a book. Uh, it was actually a journal of a, um, a Napoleon foot soldier. And he talked about there was no medicine when they came back into Germany after the, the Russian um, onslaught. And the doctor came in and he said, I have no medicine for you, but I have eating papers. And so he he tore up pieces of paper, fed them to these very sick boys who had diarrhea and everything else you can imagine after that campaign, and the report was this is anecdotal. I realize that, but the report was that they all got miraculously well from eating paper. So I have always thought maybe we should just cut up the PDR and feed it to people, and do it with the same kind of ritual that uh, prescriptions are given anyway. Um, so I'm, I'm not quite sure where you'd like for me to go, but I. I w- but it, it, how much time do we have, Gary?
0: We have whatever time you need, and I'm <laughs> okay. And, and <laughs> all right. Where I want you to go is to show the difference between trying to influence or convince or reform Mm -hmm. an existing medical system that has Mm -hmm. failed us, that causes more death and injury each year. 740,000 Americans will die this year, not a single thing, and with medicine. Now, I'm not talking about dying of cancer or heart disease. I'm talking about medical errors or even the proper use of existing procedures will kill more people than heart disease and stroke combined. And I'm saying that that system cannot be reformed, cannot be changed. So instead of trying to force change upon something that refuses to, why not simply create a new system, starting with how much power the individual has to make choices? Because if you understand the choice you make, you're less likely to end up becoming a victim of the choices you make or of the ritual of choices that we all tend to make, or most people tend to make. So why don't we deal with ritualizing health care, ritualizing healing, show the difference between the two and what the person can do to engage in this process including even the what you just mentioned is something involved in something you're familiar with which is known as the entanglement theory of quantum mm-hmm. physics which refers mm-hmm. to the interference or commingling of separate complex systems for example exactly. at uh, some subtle level there is an entanglement between the positive energy of a healer and the negative energy of a patient or his or her illness so let's talk about that as well. So we stop see, seeing ourselves as nothing more than a dysfunctional society hiding our dysfunction because of fear of what it means to surrender what we have committed ourselves to mastering.
1: But you know, you know what? I think the healthcare system has to be a dance, um, and I and I often envision it as a dance where there are, there's co-participation on the part of the, the patients and. And the people in the healthcare system. And you know we we are co-mingled. and at you know, may I talk about my research for a second? Yes, okay. I uh, was in- invited over to Hawaii uh, by Earl Bakken, who invented the pacemaker to study the healing power of prayer. Well, when I got there and I and because I had had so many prayers sent my way when I had a quote unquote, terminal disease, I felt it was kind of a divine appointment, and I'd better go take that contract, which I did and um, ultimately didn't find enough people on the island to do the traditional kind of prayer study, which is, you know, get a bunch of heart patients, get a bunch of people praying for them, you know, watch if they have other heart attacks. But what, what, what is on that island are um, healers of every genre, healers all over the place. So I recruited healers who felt that they could heal at a distance, and that they had a person with whom they felt very connected, a patient, uh, a client. And because I had use of the MRI, which was a great gift, um, I could use it eight hours a week, um, and that I put the patients in the MRI. Now, it, MRI, of course, is the biggest magnet on the on the earth, and it actually um, demagnetizes and magnetizes every cell in your body, and it's state-of-the-art technology for looking at consciousness, and that's my field. And and um, while I'm sensitive to the environment, I'm, I know more about consciousness, I think. And um, we had the healers send at random intervals. Now, that's the phrase. Random intervals, they would send their prayer or distant healing in whatever fashion their tradition uh, had it. So, uh, we had Reiki and we had Qigong and... Uh, Christian prayer and all sorts of things. We had, uh, actually, all told, that there were about 30 healers in the whole study. Um, the one where they, the study that I did, where they brought in a person that they felt connected to or bonded to, sent them the energy, and I use that word very carefully because it doesn't look like energy as we know it. It doesn't fit any form of energy as we know it. It's, it's immediate it doesn't seem to travel, it's just there. And um, that's why I had to resort to quantum physics to try and understand what was going on. But when they received the the healing energy or the prayer, unbeknownst to them, their brains lit up like Christmas trees. And um, that can only mean one thing in my mind, and that's our, our, our brains are connected. And what I've learned from that study and from my other work is I try to guard my thoughts very carefully, because my sense is that that we are uh, we are vehicles in this web of humanity for healing one another but also bringing one another harm. so um, it it taught me that i that I'm not just a skin suit that my consciousness goes to the past and the future and and maybe even into another person's mind. But the closer connected these people were to the to the um, healer, the more likely we were to see results, and that gets into the entanglement idea that once two particles have been connected, um, and, and this was in, in the microcosm that this, this theory was developed out of, it was not in the macrocosm of human beings, but the idea is that once two particles are con, are, are touched, or touch each other or connected, they'll influence the course of each other's behavior in def- forever forever. So um, when I repeated this study and did it on um, healers that did not know the persons in the MRI, I didn't get significant results. And and what that tells me is, um, you know, what would medicine be like? My friend Larry Dossi says, Jeannie, he said, if if people really understood the meaning of your, your research, it would revolutionize medicine. What it really means is our thoughts affect one another, our intentions affect one another. And... Those are what I see that hold the ritual status um, in, in uh, traditional societies. It's our thoughts and our intentions. I think um, in my lifetime, I'm, we're going to see intention being a key word, a key phrase for the, for the purpose of medicine and for um, its, um, its, its efficacy. Because I'll tell you what, Gary, I mean, I've been around a long time. I've been in Washington on committees, cancer committees, blah, blah, blah. I will tell you this: Everybody cures, everything cures somebody, and nothing cures everybody. And with that kind of variance, that huge variance, we better pay attention and stop looking for the ma- the, the magic bullet. It ain't there. I have to say that it's not going to be there, because now go back to where I started from. Because we're doing a dance. We're doing a dance with the belief systems of of the recipients of the healing, with the belief systems of the. Um, the, the physicians and the other practitioners, and we know for a fact those belief systems affect outcome of disease. So why aren't we dropping everything? All the the, the, the billions of dollars spent on the war against cancer, which as you know, uh, ha- that's not been very successful. Uh, why don't we drop everything and study this interaction, study this dance? So you have the platform.
0: Okay, well, I think we can also look at this philosophically. What you're saying is, based on your studies, that there is a universal harmony. And harmony means order. Yes. And order means proportion. So by understanding the harmony that we have as a natural, un, uh, unblocked, energy shared one to another, that we can heal, our thoughts heal, our thoughts actually create the reality by which our body moves. It was Emerson, you're familiar with Emerson, right? Oh, sure. In his journals, the 1830s. Mm -hmm. It was Emerson who said, how much finer things are in composition than alone. And yet, for the last hundred years, we have focused upon the originally the composition, and then from the 1970s alone, it had to be me, the me generation, oh, where, yeah. we, where we no longer thought what would be the consequences of my action upon others or the environment which I live. Now, because of the work of yourself and Larry Dawson, you just mentioned, and uh, Dr. Moss, and maybe uh, two or three hundred other people members of the uh, uh, Gorbachev Foundation and the Budapest Foundation, they are co-joining. All these people have one common element that binds them. They all believe that by joining in a common thought, you create a common outcome. So by thinking about peace or love or health or healing, you actually create that manifestation. The shamans have been doing that for long before we even imagined it was possible. And historically, and they knew individuals have done that. They what?
1: also knew that people healed and then they died. I mean, that healing does not necessarily mean living forever, as you and I both know.
0: Well, they're two completely separate issues. Mm-hmm. The, the healing process is to allow a person to regain the sense of balance for whatever time they have left. The whole idea of healing a person is what are you going to do now that you're healed? We have obstructed the purpose of our life by assuming that each day our entire effort is to deal with our pain and fear. The fear of loss, of homes, 34% increase in bankruptcy this month. The loss of health, uh, 65% of Americans are now overweight with all the concomitant diseases. So people are just terrified of what they're going to lose. And in the process of fearing loss, that that fear uh, blocks that unity, that harmony, that sense of balance. And then we look around. We look around for some hero. We'll look at a rock star hero or a sports hero or political hero. One of the reasons that Hillary Clinton is so popular among the Democrats is not because she is a wise person with a good plan that will help us. To the contrary. I could drive a truck through every one of her policies. She completely and proactively supported the war in Iraq. She lies and says she didn't, but I have the actual votes and, and all the uh, testimony leading up to that. But she is a hero in the minds of Democrats, much like Ronald Reagan was a hero in the minds of Republicans. It is immaterial and irrelevant whether or not they are in true heroes, It is important that they represent a unifying force. So it is the sense of unity, even if it's unity in a negative way, that people are seeking. Wasn't it Scott Fitzgerald says, show me a hero and I'll write you a tragedy? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Almost all of our heroes today are based upon showing the flaws within the individual So we overlook the flaw simply because there's something that we can identify greater than our own pain, because we don't see ourselves as being heroes, because we don't understand our own life. And just philosophically, it was Cyril Connolly who says, life is a maze in which we take the wrong turn before we have learned to walk. So we're not even willing to look at cause and effect each day. We're not willing to say, should I eat this meat? And what is the likely consequence to myself or the world? Do I really care about the environment? Well, if, if Leonardo DiCaprio cares about the environment, he should be a vegan and fly coach instead of meat and flying private jet. It's rather hypocritical to do a film called The Eleventh Hour and about global warming and you contribute to it. It's rather hypocritical for Al Gore to be eating meat and sugar and garbage and at the same time, talk about global warming. I believe that there's a time when we have to understand the relationship of our life to others and, and to do it in an intelligent way. Go ahead, the form is yours.
1: Well, you know, um, the World Health Organization, in discussing um, the, the health conditions in North Africa, defined health as a disruption in life's harmony or disease as a disruption in life's harmony, and that healing was a reweaving of this fabric. Now, isn't that better than what, we've, what than the concepts and the images that we have here? Yes. Um, and you mentioned the word harmony several times, and, I, and it, it truly is, and it's it, it, harmony of all living and non-living things. You and I both know that. Um, and we can't, we, we, we can't ignore that much longer, because it's, it's going to come back and bite us big time. Um, the other thing that you mentioned that um, I responded to was fear. And I have to tell you, Gary, I have been working with cancer patients and AIDS patients for, oh, cancer patients for 30 years anyway, and HIV for about that long. And I think they're dying from fear. Do you know that? I don't I don't think they're dying from disease. So um, I'm wondering.
0: Well, we know that's to be true.
1: It's got to be Because we know
0: what the effect of cortisol, which is a stress hormone, has upon when a person fears any disease.
1: Yeah, Yeah. you start dripping that adrenaline and cortisol and you're in trouble.
0: Epinephrine, norepinephrine, all that comes from a thought process. So change the thought to one of empowering the person into life. The very first thing I do when I sit down with someone who has been given a terminal diagnosis is I ask them, tell me 10 reasons that you believe you should live, uh-huh. and when they can't give me any reason to live, then that's where we start our journey of helping them in the healing process, enforcing them all the things they never even thought about that they could do over. But they have to think outside of the ritual because the ritual,
1: yeah. the ritual
0: doesn't have anything left for them.
1: No, and you know what? When I was given the the horrible diagnosis that I was given, I was not afraid of dying. I was not afraid of the diagnosis. I was afraid of doctors, and people said, "Gene." How could you be afraid of doctors? You worked at Southwestern Medical School all those years, and I said, "That's my point. Um, I am. I'm deathly afraid of the medical system myself, and of getting entangled in it. That and that's an honest confession."
0: Well, I I don't blame you. What Uh, I'd like you to do now, if -hmm. you would please, Jeannie, is give people in this audience an understanding of how, what they think, at any time, already creates the reality of the next moment. So therefore, pay attention to what you think, because you're creating your own reality.
1: And you live into your thoughts. You live into them. You know, every thought has a biochemical component. You know, there's sparks and showers of electricity and juices that flow with every thought. And... The thoughts, the stuff we call worry, the thoughts that we call worry, have very definite biological components that uh, do not serve us very well, except in the short run. You know, if we're trying to run away from a from a dragon or a tiger or something like that, which hardly ever happens anymore, but in the long run, it does not. The niggling, nagging worries don't serve any of us because they create biochemical destruction. Um, it, it, that's. With that said it's not always easy to to make yourself happy or to think happy. Um, But I think it needs some total concentration on how important it is to stay in a peaceful state, if you can, in order for your body to repair itself. Like I said, every thought has a biochemical component. And... um, it, 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 it's just, that's, a, that's a biological fact. So what nags at us um, does not serve us in any capacity, in any capacity. And, of course, you know, there's a lot of body-mind techniques now for dealing with those negative thoughts. And meditation, uh, imagery, which was my specialty, is my specialty, relaxation, biofeedback, all of those are, are worth an investment of energy and time to find one, a doorway that fits for you, um, a a doorway that you can quiet yourself down, um, clear your mind, uh, allow whatever comes up spontaneously at the same time, not getting emotionally engaged in it. And those are the rituals, if you want to call them that, doing that, finding a quiet place, letting your mind get quiet in some way that makes sense to you. I personally like... um, Meta, which is a loving kindness meditation, um, you send you send safety, you send love, you send peace, you send harmony to yourself, and then you send it to others, and you do this in a in a chant like fashion. So that's that's a doorway that works for me, and it also is a focusing technique, and it clears your mind, and and. And I have this feeling that if I did this more often, then I could be radiating, I would radiate love because those are loving thoughts. Those are incredibly loving thoughts. So that I would suggest um, it, it's simple minded to say, don't worry. Um, but I think we can catch ourselves in the obsession of somebody once said, maybe it's Deepak Chopra, that. 97% of our thoughts we've already had before. They're ruminations, and I don't know where he came up with 97%, but in my experience, um, that is the case. That's the case, and this is where the body mind um, strategies come in so helpful is is to, you know, take a nip out of that cycle that that we get ourselves in. I hope that's helpful.
0: It is. Do you have a website you can share with us?
1: I do. It's drjeanokterberg.com.
0: Okay, and I thank you very much for being on today, and again, this begins a journey for some people. You can't take a journey if you're not aware. Yeah. Of, of, that you have to participate in it. This is just to let people know there's so much they can do if they believe in themselves.
1: Exactly, and trust. I think part of healing is to trust.
0: Yes, it is. And in
1: the long run, everything works out. <laughs> I know that.
0: Good. Well, thank you for being with us today, Jean.
1: Well... It was my great privilege, Gary. Thank you.
0: All the best. Bye. And that is Dr. Jeannie Achtberg, A-C-H-T-E-R-B-E-R-G, and uh, she is a part of our series on Conversations with Great Minds.